everyone. Welcome back to NDRM's podcast. Uh, and we have a really exciting month for you this month. But before we get to all of that goodness, I am Michelle Bishop. I'm the Voter Access and Engagement Manager at NDRN and one third of your amazing hosting team. And I'm Stephanie Flint, Public Policy Analyst here at NDRN. And I am, I guess you could say, one fourth because we can't forget Jack, Michelle. Why do you keep forgetting no. him? Why'd you have to steal my thunder? Because I was actually going to introduce him this month. Like this was going to be the first month and now it looks like, like but, I'm. But you forgot Raquel. Raquel is unfortunately not going to be with us this month, but, but we can't, we cannot forget people even if they're not around. Yeah, I was going to. No host left behind. Okay. Okay. Don't send angry emails to podcast at NDRN.org. I didn't forget about Raquel or Jack. Poor Raquel is out sick this month. Raquel, we love you. Get better. Yes. I don't know if this podcast is going to help you get better. So maybe, maybe listen to this when you come back and just, you know, eat, eat soup and drink lots of water or, you know, beverage of choice and food of choice, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> no judgment. This is a no judgment. judgment. And then now, like I was going to introduce our producer, Jack, but Stephanie already like put it out there. So hi, Jack. We're so happy you're here with us this month. If you want to introduce yourself to the people. Thank you for the warm welcome. It's always great to be here. Um, this is producer Jack Rosen, and this month we are going to do things a little differently. Um, we have a throwback episode. Michelle, you want to tell people what it's about? Whoop, whoop. Yes, we're pulling from the vault this month. This month is actually National Disability Employment Awareness Month, one of the most important months of the year. Well, you know, I think November is the most important because that's election day. Uh, but the other most important month of the year is Disability Employment Month. And we actually have an amazing interview we pulled from the vault with Liz Weintraub talking all about disability and employment. So please enjoy. And if you've already heard that one before, because you listen to the podcast on your way to work every day, and we only have like 15 episodes. So you're like, wow, I've heard that episode literally 50 times. Don't worry, we have some new content at the end. Stephanie is going to be telling us all about White Cane Day. So enjoy the episode, folks. Liz, you're always so um, willing to help us out um, in, in any way that we ask you to. And I really, really appreciate that. So oh, thank you. We're doing this in honor of the National Disability Employment Awareness Month and your journey from going to a from a shelter workshop um, to a competitive integrated employment position. And, you know, not a lot of people have done that. So you're a great example that um, can hopefully be used to help others. But let's go ahead and start at the beginning. Um, okay. When you came out of high school, um, what was the start of your employment journey at that point? Okay. I graduated from um, a boarding for people with intellectual disability. Um, it was actually the best school of my life. And you might be saying why, because it was not an inclusive environment, uh, the kind of environment that I fight for every day. Right. Um, but it was a school that I felt like it wasn't bullied and I could have friends and I could have my friends gave me the respect that I, I deserve. Um, so, so after I graduated, um, they, the school, the headmaster talked to the parents about what 
was the next steps. Um, and they recommended to my parents uh, that I should go into a private institution. Was that a surprise to you, given that you had a positive experience at the school and had really enjoyed that? Were you expecting the next step to be uh, potentially a private institution? No. And I was very upset because... I was, and I have thought more about this uh, since I graduated. Um, when I graduated, I probably didn't think anything of it. I was just told to go there, and I went there. But since I became an advocate, I have thought a lot about it. Um, I I was very upset. I because um because my friends from that school who I went to. School um, some of my friends were in my classes. Some of them were I lived with. Um, they all went to college. They went to a um, like a college program for people with disability. But right. you know, I went to to this private institution, and my parents didn't think anything about it till I got there. And um, it was actually kind of interesting because I stayed after the second day. I called home. I remember calling home and saying to my and crying and saying to my parents, "I don't like this." And they said, "Well, we're working on something." And speed up. I after about a year, maybe two years, uh, my parents begged me to um to go home and actually live where I'm living now and what I'm um getting the support that I need um, from the agency that I'm getting right now. Um fantastic. So you pretty much spent about two years it sounds like in the institution and no, um nine years. Nine years. Oh nine years. Okay. Nine years in the institution. And if you wait a minute I'll tell you why. Okay. Sure. Um, I stayed there because um, even though my parents told begged me to come home, I really believe that if I um, if I um, listened to my parents, I would never be who I am today. I would never have been able to speak up for myself. I would never have been able to make my own decisions because I would just do whatever mom and dad wanted me to do. They told me to go to the institution I went. Um, if if they told me to go home, I if I if I li- listened to them, I would never have learned how to to stand up for myself. That's a great lesson for all of us to hear. So you basically, it sounds like, came to the decision on your own outside of what your parents were suggesting that you needed to get in a different situation. Is that correct? Yeah. So when did the show, I believe you spent some time in a sheltered workshop. Was that while you were in the institution or did that happen after you came? No, when I was living in the institution, I worked in two, two places. I worked in a place where I did kind of workshops. I mean, worksheets, like uh, math sheets that you would, get when you were a kid um and i would um do office type of work and i would it 
just was a horrible experience. And what, then was that in like a warehouse situation or were you in an office? Do you remember anything about the environment that you were in when office. you were doing that? Okay, it was in an office. Okay. And then I I worked then I graduated from that program. Mm-hmm. And um I I but I was still in the same institution and I worked in like a shopper's guide where you had um, papers that you stuff for uh, supermarkets that you get at the supermarket. Right, like the coupons or the flyers, that type of thing? Yes. And um, there was a table, probably a, more of a typical uh, workshop that we know of, where um, there was probably seven or eight people um, from the institution and two people, two staff people. It was just an awful experience because it was in a warehouse, like um, I remember, like Costco or those kinds of uh, stores that you, the Sam Sam's uh, warehouse uh, for buying things. And it was not a job that you particularly enjoyed doing. It sounds like no, no. So tell me what happened next after that um, in terms of your employment journey? Well, I got out of the, the um, institution. The way I got out of the in uh, the workshop and got into a real job because I worked um, in a library for um, the rest of the time that I was in the institution. I had a, a, a library job outside the institution uh, that I just adored. I just, it was probably one of the best jobs beside my job uh, today uh, that I had. Um, And did the people that were working with you at the institution, did they help you get that library job? Yes. Great. And, um, but the way I got out of the institution was I faked seizures. Wow. I faked seizures. And I would rock and rock and rock and rock and rock. And, and, I, um, and I would run away when I got upset. I would, I studied people when they had seizures. And I could notice how they were treating they has seizures, and I don't mean uh-huh. to make fun of people because I know seizures are really serious things. Um, but um, but that's the only way I knew that I could have people stop and listen. Yeah. Wow. Did that then lead to a change? Um, where you were able to be in a different circumstance? Yeah. Um, I still was. Living in that institution um, because my parents didn't think anything of that I should move. And so I went to a conference one day, and um, a national conference, and um, two of my best friends so happened. Um, they were talking to some people from Massachusetts. Because Massachusetts was at that time just starting um to work on self-advocacy and they um, they wanted to um, to hire someone to help them with self-advocacy. Two of my friends, so they, two people from, from Massachusetts uh, saw me at this conference and offered me a job. My 
main job was to work on um, quality assurance. Fantastic. Yeah, they had a um, uh, um, a survey that they they give to people that live um, um, to provide this to interview people, and then they did some trains um, and. One of the other interesting parts of that story is, and I learned this very, a very important lesson, is um, I kept on saying to people in my interview, before I got the job, I want to be treated just like everyone else. The only issue in the training department was at the institution. I said to my friend, um, I said, why am I in the institution? Why am I in the institution? I don't want to be in the institution. I was in the institution. I got out of the institution. And she said, you want to be treated just like everyone else, so you're going to be treated the like everyone else, and that's where the training department was. I wanted to do more traveling and more seeing the world. Um, so I, and I also wanted to live closer to mom and dad. I left that job. I went back to the conference where I found found my job in Massachusetts. Right. And um, uh, somebody recommended a job called the Counseling Quality and Leadership. And I stayed there for 16 years where I did survey work and I also did some training work and it was just a great job. Great. And so that sounds like that built directly on what you had already been doing with the survey work and the quality assurance. Where was this job located that you got, um, that you stayed at for 16 years? Um, the headquarters was in Baltimore. But okay. um, people got people were all over the country. They wanted me to to move from Massachusetts uh, to Baltimore, and as I said, um, um, I wanted to live closer to mom and dad. But um, but once I met my uh, my at that time my boyfriend, now my husband, and he was living he was living um in the Rockford area where we live today, right. and I um. So I, I begged and begged and begged my supervisor if I could work from home, just like everyone else. And I would travel when I needed to. And um, they agreed to. It. And then um, I got bored about doing that. So that well, was... well, 16 years is a long time. <laughs> yeah. So, so you didn't get bored too quickly, but then you just got to a point where you were ready to move on to... The next yeah. step. And then um, I found my job at AUCG. That is great. So tell us a little bit about how you found your job at AUCD. AUCD was doing a uh, project, um, the Self-Advocacy Summit, and, um, and AUCD knew that they could not. Um, it was actually a, um, a project that ACL was doing, um, one of the nuts. And... Um, AUCD knew that they could not do that work without a self-advocate. So they hired me. That is fantastic. And so 
what were your job responsibilities um, when they hired you? Um, what what did you have to do each day? I was doing part-time work. So I was working for CQO and AECD. But um, what I was doing was I helped them set up webinars. I went to all the summits. After all the summits were over, I, um, I wrote the reports. Um, I helped them write a plain language report. After that was all done, I had a vision of doing a uh, a video show. Well, and let's talk a little bit about Tuesdays with Liz. Tuesdays with Liz has been around for four years. It's a YouTube show uh, where I make um, policy in um, in accessible and fun ways for people to understand. And my idea was, has always been, and it began with my idea, maybe it was a selfish idea, but I think all, everything begins with you in, in some ways. Um, when I was little, I, I sat at the table and I never table, the dining room table with all my um, family. And I never understood what a policy was. I never understood what what um, home community based services was. I never understood what this was. I never understood what that was. So I wanted to make sure. And when I had the opportunity right after the summer to to develop a YouTube show that that people could could go could understand what a policy was so right. they could go up to the hill whether it was here in um in um, annapolis maryland or in dc um to talk about okay i know what the able act is i know what an transformative competitive employment act is and i know yeah so it sounds like your goal, and it sounds like your goal is still today, that you want to make policy accessible and understandable to everybody so that it's clear what policies exist today and what type of advocacy needs to be done. Is is that what your goal is? Yes. And, and we, we have either done that with our newsletter called the Disability Policy News. Um, there's a piece of it that I, I edit every week um, for plain language. And some of the words can't be changed because it's part of the law. Right. Part of um, uh, words are the way it is. But something that way we have a um, plain language that we can talk about it. And can you kind of say um, why plain language is so important for people who may not know about plain language or um, why we strive to to make things in plain language? Why is that important to you and to others? I great question. Thank you. Um, I think plain language is important because it helps people bond to the conversation. It's help um, people to understand that they can contribute and if there's no plain language. And there's so many times that I've gone to a meeting and people talk in big words. I I don't mean uh, 17 letters. I mean 
big words that I don't understand. Right. Sometimes they're seventeen letters, but sometimes <laughs> they're just just big words. And um, and if I can't understand it, I feel I feel like I want to cry because I'm not part of the conversation, and I can't be part of the conversation, and I want to be part of the conversation. That's a very important point. And if people want to find um, Tuesdays with Liz, um, can they search on YouTube or how do, how would they find your show? You can go to aucd.org or you okay. can uh, Google on Tuesdays with Liz. Fantastic. And do you actually have input into the people that you're going to interview? Do you have to come up with a question? Yes. Yes. How we do it is that there's a team of us, um, the director of public policy, our um, the producer, and myself. Um, and that's why we need to wait for the producer. But um, as I said, we're still at um, doing um, past episodes, um, mostly on voting, because voting is important these days. Absolutely. Um, we come up with who we think would be good people to interview, whether it's a topic that is in the news, whether it's a topic that AUCD is working on, or whether it's just a topic that I think that people might be interested in. That sounds fantastic. And is that sort of the main part of your job now at AUCD, as well as helping to make sure the documents are in plain language, like we talked about? Are the are, Is that in the podcast um, your two main responsibilities at this point? Yes. And I should say the questions are all probably 90% my ideas right. um, because um, it's what I'm interested in. And sometimes my, my supervisor, the, the director of public policy, Rylan Rogers, will, um, will suggest things. Great, great. Um, do you have any particular um, accommodations for your disability um, when you're working in AUCD? Do they set things up in a different way? Or is there anything that makes it easier for you to be able to do your job well that you can share? Um, well, I think the um, we have tried like a voice and recognition for um, me to learn how to type faster. Uh-huh. Um, because I type um i know that my my mother would be rolling in her grave but <laughs> i still type i still type like a hand pack type is right um, it's just hard for me to use two hands right um it's really important that i feel very supported in my job and i'll give you an example um sure. and this is so wonderful um AUCD has change on uh, emails servers and i don't understand what what it's called but um anyway um and i got frustrated i didn't know how how to work things right. i didn't know um what it looked like and i got scared and um the um web person at work um walked me through it 
and it was just wonderful. And now I'm happy and I can do things myself. And yes, it's nice to know that I have a backup with Phil, my husband. And the other thing that seems to run through your story as you have recounted it to us today is that you've had good communication with your supervisors. Even people above your supervisor, if if there's a problem with your supervisor and this has never happened to me. Um, but if I ever had a problem with my supervisor, people have have often people have said to all of us, you know, you can talk to your to the ED of AUCD because I could have a problem with my supervisor. I think it's also important that that I don't um people with disability need to be accountable for for their job and what they they say and they do. And if we mess up. Okay, we mess up, but we can't say, oh, yeah, you're a person with a disability. We'll overlook that. That is a no. very important point. No. Very important. Treat me just like everyone else. Like like me going into the institution. Did I like going into the institution? No, but that's where the training department was. And that's that's how being treated just like everyone else. And then the other thing I'll say is about giving me real work to do. It's not busy work I'm doing at AUCD. I'm doing real work. I'm contributing. I think I basically said it, but I'll say it too, was nothing about us without us. And that means if there's something involving me or my friends, I should be at that table. Not me personally. Well, maybe me personally. <laughs> That'd be fine but, too. <laughs> yeah. But other people, and then all means all, we all need to be included. That is perfect way to end this conversation. I really enjoyed spending the time with you today, Liz. And I'm so glad that we're able to share your story as widely as possible. Okay, thank you. Be safe and happy, happy employment month. Goodbye. Oh, wow. That was such a great episode with Liz. Um, interesting to listen to some of the podcasts before I became the producer with the old hosting team. Uh, <laughs> I was still here, actually. I'm pretty sure I'm the only person who ha- was is an OG uh, from the old podcast. But we remain huge fans of Liz Weintraub. Liz, thank you so much. Producer's note, that was actually not the old hosting team. It was staff attorney Amy Shearer. Amy, thank you for doing our work this month. All right, back to the show. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's always really good to kind of listen back on different perspectives and especially around this time of year when when it comes to celebrating in-deem, as a lot of people call it. Um, So yeah, definitely a really good interview that, of course, offers different perspectives. And Liz is just such an incredible human. I always... I feel like we learn something new every single time we chat with her or, you know, listen to different stories, um, you know, that that she has. And so, you know, definitely love, you know, I'm so glad that you guys got to hear her perspective this month. And some of you, you know, getting to hear that as an encore this month. Things we've learned so far in this episode. We are Liz Weintraub fangirls. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> and cool kids call it Endeam. Um, okay, so Stephanie, take it away and tell us what exactly is White Cane Day? What do we need to know? 
Yeah, thank you so much. Super excited to uh, spotlight uh, White Cane Safety Day. So White Cane Safety Day has actually been a thing since October 15th of 1964. There was a um, there was a joint congressional resolution um, in 1964, and it was signed by Lyndon B. Johnson to proclaim that uh, White Cane Safety Day be honored on October 15th to essentially create awareness around the white cane. Now, the white cane, a lot of people uh, you know, see it as a symbol of a blind person. Uh, but the way that blind people see it, and, you know, maybe I shouldn't speak for all blind people, right? But I can tell you that the folks in my blind friend group, um, we all see it as a symbol of independence, right? Um, you know, it's a way that we are able to um, go various places. It, it helps us detect obstacles, you know, um, you know, it ensures our safety. Um, the first uh, white cane law, believe it or not, blind people were not always allowed, quote unquote, or given the right rather to travel on our own. Um, and the first white cane law was actually um, passed in the 1930s. Um, and since then, thankfully, all states now have some reiteration of a white cane law um, that essentially gives uh, blind people the freedom to travel, but also to it kind of um, it creates um, it essentially um, the white cane law makes it to where um, individuals uh, to where motorists um, must yield to blind pedestrians when it comes to traffic and crossing streets and, and those types of things. Um, you know, a lot of the time, particularly when it comes to hybrid cars, sometimes it used to be harder to tell. Thankfully, we have passed um, the Pedestrian Safety Enhancement Act back in 2011, um, where all cars have to make some sort of noise, including the hybrid ones. But for a while, that definitely came in handy um, when the, you know, cars were supposed to, um, you know, yield to us, so to speak. Um, so all that to be said, you know, we do really see that as a symbol of independence. It's, you know, been super helpful along the way. And believe it or not, these laws actually also extend to guide dogs, something that's not as well known. Um, some people use different versions of the white cane. Some people have red tips on the bottom. And a lot of people, that's probably the most customary white cane that you see, a white cane with a red tip. Not everybody's going to have a red tip at the bottom of their white cane. Mine actually does not. Um, so different people use um, different versions um, created by different um individuals. Um, so, you know, there are, of course, the straight white canes. There are some that fold. There are some that telescope, um, you know, just various ones across the board to kind of help individuals get a feel of what they would like to get. And what I mean by that is some white canes, at least in my experience, you know, I prefer a lighter white cane. And the reason that I prefer a cane that's lighter in my hand is because I feel like I get more feedback. Some people prefer a cane that's a little bit more heavier or a little bit heavier because the canes are more durable. The argument is that the canes are more, more durable that way. Um, but, you know, everybody kind of has... Uh, different blind people, you know, decide to use whatever mobility device uh, is going to best 
fit or meet their needs rather. You know, some individuals use canes, some individuals use guide dogs, but either way, um, you know, the white cane goes beyond just the white cane. It kind of, it, it continues to serve as a, as a level of independence to this day. So I know that was kind of rambly, but super, super excited that, you know, I'm able to kind of spotlight that. Well, very cool, Stephanie. Thanks for sharing that with us. And I assume our listeners to the podcast know that you are blind because we do frequently reference Nala, everyone's favorite service dog, who is a frequent guest actually on NDRN social media accounts. Uh, so I, we have to go to this next, don't we? I think we do. There's no getting out of this. Stephanie, do you have a joke this month? I do, but I also have a statement first. Okay. I'm scared. So before we started recording, I told Michelle about the origin of my joke and y'all, she said she was so excited. I know it's not on recording, but it's here. It happened. Michelle likes my jokes. You have no proof. You have no proof that I ever said that we were not recording and I will not stand for this kind of slander. Anyway. Okay. This really isn't as much of a joke as it is a question because I was doing some digging on Google just regarding Halloween stuff in general. And then, you know how Google does these like suggested questions that come up? So one of the suggested questions actually was, what do witches eat on their bagels? And of course I clicked on it because I'm like, what does this mean? Is this like some new children's book that I don't know of. But anyway, what do you all think the answer to that question was? What and... do witches eat on their bagels? Uh-huh. Yes. Also, why are people Googling that? Like, why is it so Googled that that question comes up whenever you're trying to Google Halloween costumes for your dog? I don't understand. I'm trying to think of something witchy, but it could also just be like scream cheese. It is scream. Oh, no. <laughs> Michelle is two for two. Oh, I'm starting to know the answer to too many of these. Oh, no. There actually was a third I knew the answer to, but I couldn't unmute in time. So there are three recently that I have known the answer to. I swear I don't prep Michelle in advance to know the answer to these jokes. She doesn't, and and Michelle is is always a little disappointed in herself. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe you're the one who Googled that question and it came up. (laughs) I I Googled it at the off. Contributor. On everyone's Google. Yes. Um, well, I did. The people did need to know what yes. to put on their bagels. That's that's a given. Um. <laughs> I mean, team butter on my bagels. I don't like cream cheese, but that's just me. I'm with Stephanie on this one. And what? if you'd like to keep up with us, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn and Instagram. And you can reach out to the podcast at podcast at NDRN.org. Hold back. Happy ending, everyone. Happy Halloween. And Raquel, we miss you. Get better soon. Bye.